over a span of 2,000 years, 40 authors on three different continents and in three different languages penned 66 books, all of which were supernaturally inspired and intricately designed as God's revelation to man. The spoken word of God, living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, recorded and bound just for us. Join us on a journey from Genesis to Revelation, all 66 books, the big book, cover to cover. This is Michael Easley in Context. Let's jump into the book of Jeremiah. It is the prophet of judgment. For 40-some years, Jeremiah is going to minister primarily to Judah, but interestingly, his message is also going to go to Gentile nations which um, when we hear so much misrepresentation about the Jewish people, about land in Israel, and uh, the prophets go back to the uh, Abrahamic covenant were to be a blessing to the world. And so God chose this group of people we call the Jews, Israelites, uh, to be the ones who carried those messages. Uh, Jeremiah is, um, someone described him as, unfortunately, the recipients beat the messenger rather than heed the message. And Jeremiah is going to endure a lot. Uh, we read a lot about what happens to him. He lives to see the armies of Babylon destroy, uh, really, the last representation of Israel at its divided monarchy time. The meaning of his name is a bit debated and uncertain. We don't know what it means. Uh, some think it means Yahweh establishes. Literally in Hebrew, it means Yahweh throws which doesn't make a lot of sense, and so we don't want know what to do with it. The usage of throwing something down might be uh, part of it, but it's one of those things, don't overwork it when you don't know for sure. We did know his father, Hilkiah, was a priest. He lived about three miles north of Jerusalem, the city proper, in a small village called Anatoth. And Anatoth was one of the cities from inception that was set apart for the priest to live in. So uh, we, we get this sense, this little, little phrase about Hilkiah and the city Anatoth, that uh, he's a good man, and he's raising, he's a righteous, pious Jew trying to do things well, and Jeremiah is his son. We have no indication from the Bible that he was a priest, even though he would be part of that Levitical, Aaronic family line. Again, about 41 to 45 years, Jeremiah's ministry spans primarily in Judah, uh, we have a timestamp in Jeremiah 1 with uh, the name Josiah, the 13th year of King Josiah's reign in verse one, chapter 1, verse 2. And Josiah was Judah's last good king. Uh, they have uh, their, their contemporaries. They know each other. And um, Josiah's reforms were tremendous. There's this, and as you read the Bible, you always have these high places. They're tearing down the high places, the Asherim, the Ashtaroth, and this is perennial weed. And uh, for those of you who've been to Israel or going to Journeys of Paul, you'll see this in 3D in real life. These uh, statues were basically, uh, uh, Jeremiah's going to make the comparison, idolatry is essentially adultery. And you'll see why when you see these statues that were built and were worshipped. And there was this, they were like weeds. You couldn't quite get rid of them. And every time a king would come in and tear them down, whether it was Asa or Josiah, they would still come back, and it's just hard to manage these things. But um, I want to read one section from 2 Kings 23 to give you a little picture of Josiah. By the way, a great name if you're going to have a son. It's a great name for a boy. Uh, 2 Kings 23. 
3.25, Before him there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might according to the law of Moses, nor did any like him arise after him. So quite an quite a epitaph on the king's life, Josiah being a good king. So again, they're contemporaries. Uh, we have some interesting insight on Jeremiah mourning the death or maybe you call it a murder of King Josiah. And if you've been to Israel, we went to Megiddo. And Megiddo, of course, was the place where we always see the big red weird worms. Everybody remembers the worms. Uh, Megiddo is where a tell has been dug out. And we show, talk about the tell. There's a high place altar there where they sacrificed uh, children as well as animals, the Canaanite sacrificial systems. Um, but that's where Necho, who is an uh, Egyptian pharaoh, is in a conquest and he kills um, Jeremiah, uh, Josiah. He's only 39. And so he accomplished quite a bit as a king. But we have this time stamp. It's in the 13th year of his reign that God is going to give this message to um, Jeremiah. The focus of the ancient world, we, we have superpowers today. We had superpowers in antiquity. And you basically have Egypt, uh, Babylon, the Assyrians, and, and those would be the superpowers around this little tiny piece of land that we call Israel. And the, the, the powers moved back and forth. Babylon is becoming the power to be reckoned with. Um, some call Jeremiah the weeping prophet. And uh, Wilkinson and Boa, the book that I've mentioned very uh, frequently, a little, it's a, just a helpful little tool to give you a picture of each book of the Bible. And uh, it's called Talks of the Bible. And they write, a heartbroken prophet bearing a heartbreaking message. That's pretty good a heartbroken prophet bearing a heartbreaking message. Because we have a lot of compassion in this man, Jeremiah. We know more about Jeremiah's personal life and, than any other prophet in the Old Testament, which is pretty striking when you, um, when you think through Isaiah and Ezekiel and Daniel and any minor prophet you want to choose. Um, let me read a few passages that give us a little insight into his person. Jeremiah 1.19, God is speaking to Jeremiah, they will fight against you, but they will not overcome you, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. That sounds like a cheery Michael Ely sermon, right? <clears throat> Jeremiah 15, 18. Why has my pain been perpetual and my wound incurable? I love that phrase. My wound is incurable. We find it a number of times in Jeremiah and I think also in Job. Refusing to be healed. Will you uh, indeed be to me like a deceptive stream with water which is unreliable? In antiquity, uh, water was life. Three kinds of water, living water, streams, lakes, and cisterns. Cisterns are the worst. Cisterns are like really bad old bottled water that's out of date and expired. You don't want to drink it unless you have to. Lakes were okay if they were spring-fed, but streams are what you want. And Jeremiah is saying, you're, you're a living stream, but you're, you're unpredictable. I can't count on you. Interesting insight of the prophet talking to God this way. In Jeremiah 20, verse 1, Then Pashur, the priest, the son of Emer, who was chief officer in the house of the Lord, heard Jeremiah prophesying these things. Pashur had Jeremiah the prophet beaten and put him in stocks that were, in, uh, that were at the upper Benjamin gate, which is by the house of the Lord. And then finally, uh, Jeremiah 20, and many of you know this, if you're Bible readers, when Jeremiah says profound words, O Lord, you have deceived me, and I was deceived. 
And so you get a, a glimpse of a guy at the bottom. You told me I was going to do this, you're going to be with me, but you deceived me. And I think, side, sidebar lesson, a lot of us are going to have experiences in our Christian lives that we're going to feel like, God, you deceived me. And it's, it's pride, it's whatever you want to call it, but in Jeremiah's case, uh, he was being beaten and, and maligned and assaulted, and he cared for the people. It wasn't like he was this indignatious prophet. He had this great compassion for his people. You have overcome me and prevailed. I have become a laughingstock all day long. Everyone mocks me. For each time I speak, I cry aloud. I proclaim violence and destruction because for me, the word of the Lord has resulted in reproach and derision all day long. I took your word, I did what you said, and it has not worked out even okay. It's been horrible in my experience. So we know a lot about Jeremiah. These are just a few snapshots um, from this big book. But we also see this combination of courage and compassion because he carries out what God tells him to do uh, with great courage, but he also has compassion and he endures a lot of pain. Um, I think, and I don't want to push this too far, but as I've studied the book and sat back on what God did with Jeremiah personally and nationally, it, to me there's a little reflection of God the Father and how he looks at us. That he's compassionate, but he's a God of judgment and righteousness. And although he cares for people, uh, bad things are going to happen because of sin and the consequences of sin. As you've often heard me say, we're fallen people in a fallen context. And because of that, things are not always going to go the way we would wish them to go. Um, it, and I say this with air quotes, it pains God to discipline his people. But he knows as the perfect father, he has to bring discipline at times in their lives, just like he does for you and me. Well, even with the 40 plus years of prophetic ministry, uh, Judah is still emboldened in her sin. Uh, it underscores the stiff-necked nature of this people that God chose. And uh, so God's word and God's prophet are going to prevail, but the people are not going to listen. From the organizational stance of the book, it is complex. This is not a chronological book to read. You can't read it uh, like a timeline. And there are a lot of scholarly schemes as well as the Bible study schemes to try and organize the book. Um, I don't want to bore you with this, and only a few of us in this room would, would go this deep or would be of interest to you. But one way to think about it, uh, it's not quite 50-50, let's just call it 40-40, is prose and poetry, which is interesting from a prophetic book. You expect some songs and psalms and breakouts, if you will, but the sermon structure of what Jeremiah is delivering to God's people under his, war, under his orders, the, the sermon structure is prose and poetry, which invites a lot of study because of the, the way things are structured. It's unusual in that regard. Um, some consider an anthology, and that word is used a lot by Bible scholars when they don't know how to put a handle on something. It's an anthology. It's a collection, which is a fair, a fair way to describe things. And it might be as simple as saying, and again, the numbers would be disputed, but just to put your hat on something, there's 13 messages in five books. That's just a way for me to think about it, because it's not chronological, it's not sequential, it jumps around. The last chapters are probably bolted on way late in Jeremiah's life. So it's still the Word of God, but it's a little complex when we read it, uh, like our Western brain wants to read a story. Uh, anyway, so of note, and this uh, may not surprise some of you, but it actually, I, this was new to me, Jeremiah is the second longest book in the Bible. 
I did not know that. What's the first? Psalms. And so Jeremiah is longer than Isaiah, even though the chapter enumerations are, are less, there's more volume in the text of Jeremiah. Um, reading any book of the Bible, and most of you know this, but just uh, again to reinforce it, and no matter where you are in your view of the Bible, your spiritual journey, uh, one of the key teaching modalities is repetition and restatement. That's why, uh, do they still make you memorize the multiplication charts in, in school, they still have to do that. Um, I didn't know if the way things have changed, you had to or not. But the, how do you do that? You just memorize them. You just repeat them, repeat it. You might put them to music, you know, but you've got to know those things cold. Do any of you, and I'll be proud and I'll, I'll be humble and raise my hand, I have to think sometimes with the nines. For some reason, the nines throw me off. Everything else I can do, when it's nine times seven, I have to check myself twice. I, just, I don't know why my brain just has a burp there. But uh, I, you memorize them cold. Repetition and restatement. Most, the most simple pedagogy. How do you teach something? Repetition and restatement. So I wanted to show you four things that are repeated. And when you read the Bible, look for repetition. Look for restatement. Look for recurring themes. You don't have to be a Bible scholar or go to college. or You don't have to go to BSF, Preceptor, Community Bible Study, which are great. Look for repetition and restatement. And you're going to see these things. The Word of the Lord occurs 52 times in Jeremiah. And Christy rightly pointed this out, as she did another one I'll talk about in a second. This is the word of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Secondly, uh, let me read a couple of them. One, two, the word of the Lord came. One, four, now the word of the Lord came to me saying. One, eleven, the word of the Lord came to me saying. So the re let the reader pay attention. Let the reader not miss. Obvious things are telling us something. This is God's word. Secondly, uh, we see the repetition of the word speak 39 times. Um, this is most often, not always, if you just do a concordance search, sometimes it's other, it's Jeremiah speaking, but most of the time it's God speaking. And God is speaking, which tandems the first part. Here's the word of the Lord. So God is speaking and telling Jeremiah something. Third, the word listen. 49 times it occurs in the book of Jeremiah. And they did not listen, they refused to listen. Uh, to listen and to give heed is the implication. And then fourth is the word Babylon, which is mentioned 162 times in Jeremiah. So if, if nothing else, you're reading a book, go, we see these occurring a lot. And, and I can't show you my Bible literally, but physically, but I put boxes around certain things. I don't use the, the precept thing is too much for me. Uh, and, and I have my own little system I use. And I put boxes around things. Anytime loving kindness or a soteriological or a salvation word occurs, I underline it red. So my Bible, it's sort of like the red letter carryover. So anything in the Old Testament that is, soteriolo that is salvific, I underline it red. Loving kindness, compassion sometimes, save most of the time. Uh, but I put a box around things. So in, if you read, look at my Bible, Jeremiah, the word of the Lord's got a box around it every time. Because when I go back to read that, I want to see it. Because it took me a long time to find it the first time. So I want to see it when I go back and be reminded of these repetitions and restatements in the Bible. And let me just break here with a, the lesson. Uh, that it's, it's so obvious, but those are the lessons that I need reminding of. God's Word is our ultimate foundation. This book that we hold is our ultimate foundation. It has the authority. It is immutable. It is good. It is true. It is convicting. It is encouraging. It is non-negotiable. It is relevant. It is timeless. Uh, it transcends culture, experience, and opinion. 
which is why I like the phrase, don't let the world teach you theology. It follows that if you're listening to the word of the Lord, you are implicitly obeying God's word. And those have to be connected. It's not just a, a head nod. Yeah, I agree with that, but I don't live that way. That's not listening. That's not heeding. That's not paying attention. But to understand the word of God is foundational. It almost sounds like, you know, this is a football, Vince Lombardi. But and I don't mean to rain on churches' parades, but I, I'm broken hardly with the churches that are experiential in their theology, emotional in their appeal, and their focus is on heart, their focus is on your world, your experience, six sermons on how to have a better marriage, all of which are fine and good and important. But if it's not the authoritative baseline of God's Word, it's just psychobabble. And it might be good psychobabble. It might be fine. But it does not carry the weight of Scripture. Um, and again, if you're here at Stonebridge, you're probably here for, that's one of the reasons, but um, I, my heart breaks that literally and metaphorically, we're not carrying a Bible in life, and this is your foundation. This is God's world revealed to you and me, as Dr. Howard Hendricks said. He, he gave us his word, and he did not stutter. So you've got it. And the question is, are we exposed to it? Because, as you know, morning by morning, new verses you'll read. No matter, no matter how many times you read this book or study, you're going to see things you did not see before. And that's the joy, frankly, of staying in the Word. Let's look at Jeremiah's call, and I'm going to ask you to read this with me from the screens. This is uh, Jeremiah 1, verses 4 to 10. Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I have appointed you a prophet to the nations. Then I said, Alas, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak, because I am a youth. But the Lord said to me, Do not say I am a youth, because everywhere I send you, you shall go. And all that I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. Then the Lord stretched out his hand and touched my mouth. And the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. See, I have appointed you this day over the nations and over the kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. Um, so much in this call, this commissioning of Jeremiah, um, but understand before he's formed in utero, God chose him. It's as clear as it can be in the passage. Um, God has chosen people before they were born. Uh, we, can't, we can't begin to understand this in our finite fallen minds, but it is taught through Scripture that God chooses people before they're born for certain uh, mission calling purposes. David knew this in Psalm 139. Verse 13, David said, For you formed me my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. I follow um, some Instagram things that I wouldn't recommend because some of them are pretty gory, but there's one medical one I follow that shows a lot of interesting pictures that 
a lot of them have it have it blocked sensitive content, you know, and that's the one I want to look at. Um, but one of the ones they re repeat a lot is a hand. I think it was the first picture of a, a infant's hand grabbing the surgeon's finger. And I always think of that fearfully and wonderfully made. Uh, no, no two people on the planet alike. Your fingerprints are unique of all ten digits. No two fingerprints on the planet are alike. Why do you think God can't make man in his image the way he wants? It's fascinating to me. You formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me when I was yet when as yet there was not one of them. Before I ever was ever born, you know all about me. Before I was woven, you, you know my days. You know everything about me. And, and this goes back to your view of God. Is he the sovereign creator and sustainer of all or not? Paul knew it. Ephesians 1, chapter 1, verse 4 and following. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. I can't tell you the number of times I've preached these passages in churches and whatnot, and people can, you believe in election or predestination? I go, explain this one verse to me. What are you going to do with this one verse? Now, before your mind runs to double predestination and God sending people to hell and this capricious God that does what he wants in wrath, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Purpose clause, I think that we should be holy and blameless before Him in love. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself according to the kind intention of His will. There's many, many other passages that will teach this. The two terms I want to point out in the call of Jeremiah is the word consecrated and appointed. He was consecrated and He was appointed. Consecrate simply means to set something apart. And again, I've used this illustration innumerable times. Some of you know it well. So uh, my grandma, maternal grandmother died, and I inherited her china. It's a dogwood pattern. I mean, it's 150-plus years old now, maybe older than that. It's got a gold edging around it. What happens to old china that's been used again and again with gold edging? The gold comes off. It's a dogwood pattern. Fortunately, when Cindy and I were uh, married, she liked it, so we kept it. And so we've got the china. The, the cups are chipped, the, the gold comes off a lot of it. There's one piece called a tureen. For us Southerners, it's a gravy bowl. Uh, the tureen is a, a, a unique piece in the set. It's molded. It's, some of them are two parts. This is one. So the, the drip pan for the gravy bowl and the bowl is one. And that piece is essentially flawless. Why? Because it's never used. And in uh, my grandmother's um, china cabinet, it had the glass in the front. That sat at the center uh, along with the little creamer things, sugar and creamer things, because they were never used and they were pristine. And so when I read consecrated or set apart, I always think of a terrine. It's special. It's not used to play and make mud piles. You don't give it to the grandkids to play with. That one sets in a prominent place, set apart for a special use when you have Thanksgiving or Easter or Christmas and you get out the gravy bowl. 
You're going to use that terrain for that special occasion only. He's consecrated. And then the word appointed means to set in place. So it's set in place. The word is used in lots of interesting ways in the Old Testament. Placing a ring on a hand, that is appointing it. Putting a helmet on a head is appointing it. Putting a prisoner in stocks is appointing that prisoner. So Jeremiah is set apart and he's put in a place. God's going to use him. He touched his mouth. The words are in his mouth. We find the parallels to Isaiah. Um, that God's word then is, is, is put in his lips, inspired we might say. And then we see the beginning of this prose, to pluck away, to, excuse me, to pluck up, to break away, to destroy, to overthrow, to build, and to plant. He's chosen of God, he's appointed of God, he's equipped by God to be his prophet. He's going to speak judgment. And Jeremiah was to deliver what God would give him, and he did. The lesson here is, I think, one that is hard for many of us to embrace or even think through. If God knew Jeremiah before he was formed, does it follow that he knew and knows you? We look at these people as somehow superhuman. We look at them as supernaturally endowed with some special calling, empowering, appointing, electing, setting apart. And, and well, we should. He chose David. It's the Davidic messianic throne. He chooses Jeremiah to deliver this message. He chooses Paul to be an apostle to the Gentiles, so forth and so on. But I think we need to pull this back to, to look at your own Christian life. Did he know you before you were formed? I believe he did. Now here's the ticklish or the, the inartful question. Are you as commissioned and called and designed and directed as a prophet Jeremiah or an apostle Paul or whoever you want to look to? And we can, we get a little squishy there, right? Sometimes when we talk about the eternal truths of predestination and election, we have objections intellectually, and I, I get that. Um, it, it sounds like God is, is sending people to hell, and some of our friends would hold what I call archery form position of double predestination. He's predestined people to heaven and hell. Intellectually, I see where they're coming from, but I think we overwork the doctrine too much. What the doctrine is saying is all men and women are headed to hell. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Period. We deserve hell. Nobody deserves heaven. Grace is undeserved favor in the face of deserved wrath. Grace is the means by which he calls us to faith. Faith is the operative word that we like to use. By faith, I trust Jesus Christ. I put my faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. I believe in the gospel and lots of synonyms that we use to talk about this salvation experience, this conversion experience. We're placing trust in Christ to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. That's our, the means by which grace was given to us, and we respond by that. And so then we said, well, you know, and I heard this recently. Uh, I was watching an interview. It's, I don't think it's dishing because it's online with Aaron Rodgers and Danica, um, the race car driver, Price, uh, Patrick. And they're talking about basically losing their religion. And it's interesting how Aaron Rodgers talks about when he was in young life and what he believed. And then as he got older and more mature, he said, well, why would God do that? It seems to me. It doesn't make sense that a God would. And so now we've gone from a view of Scripture telling us who God is to, you know, you've heard me say this a thousand times. When a person says, I can never believe in a God who, you've just shown how proud you are. 
I can never believe in a God who allows suffering, allows wars, allows uh, fill-in-the-blank AIDS. I couldn't believe, I can't worship a God who. Well, you've just made God in your image. Let's see how that works out. A lot of variables. I can't handle that God does certain things a certain way. Well, let's, let's tone the, the argument down and say we're human, we're fallen creatures in a fallen context, we're sinful, our minds are limited. Some of these things you're not going to grasp totally. Now, I have, I've taught on predestination and election all my Christian life. First three years when I came to Christ out of the Catholic Church and I was in Bible studies, this for some reason was a hot topic. And I remember just fighting with my Bible study friends going, God doesn't, that's wrong, he doesn't elect you. I also had trouble with eternal security. Once saved, always saved, cliche. I had real trouble with that. It took three, four years, and, and then it dawned on me one day, Michael, you're not smart enough to figure this out. <laughs> and then I started looking at what the Scripture says and what it doesn't say, which is always a good harbor, because that's where we get in trouble when we say what the Bible does or, or project. And the fact of the matter is God calls and chooses people, but we're all going to hell in a handbasket. And I don't want to get too far off on this, but I, I just want to, if, if you're frustrated with this, and I want to say this as kindly, but as truthful, as kindly as I can, but I, it's, tr- it's truth in Scripture, the doctrines of predestination exist. You don't have to embrace you know, every fully nuance of every doctrine in the Bible, but this is a core doctrine. It's taught in the Bible. Where we get in trouble is when we inject our own thinking to this. Jeremiah is clearly called. No one debates. Well, he wasn't called. How did he know he was called? How did he know he was commissioned? Well, you can have that argument, and you can become liberal in your view of the Bible, and that's your prerogative. I'm going to lean on God's Word, not man's wisdom. I'm leaning on the text even when it's difficult. All this to say, back to you. Are you called like Jeremiah or Isaiah or Paul? Um, again, there's been countless books and studies and, and all sorts of interesting um, processes to find God's will for your life. And we think, think of calling when it comes to like missionaries and pastors. They're called. How many times? I was called to be a pastor when I was 12. I was called to be a missionary when I was 10. Well, that's fine. Um, I, I reduce it to this, this level. And you can certainly improve and grow in your own experience. Gifts, talents, and abilities. If God designed me, he knew what I was gifted, talented, and able to do just like he does you. And in that, as a believer, now if I'm indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God, I have a different purpose in life. And that's to use that talent, gifts, and ability for God, for the love of God, for the love of his people. And to me, instead of making it, and I love the complicated, I love reading about this stuff ad nauseum. It doesn't help you. I understand most of that. But what does help all of us is, are you using your gifts, your talents, and your abilities to serve God? So if you're a homemaker, if you're a homeschool parent and you also work outside, if you're in medicine, if you're a teacher, an educator, you're an attorney, you're a songwriter, you're a musician, whatever you are, you've got certain gifts, talents, and abilities. Uh, They used to use the word avocare, which we get vocation from. That really has an etymology back to calling. So I think in more common theological sense, your gifts, talents, and abilities... If you are a believer of Jesus Christ, your job in mind is to look at your gifts, talents, abilities, and say, how do I use these for the kingdom of God? It's that simple. Why do we make some of these things so complicated? So again, you can improve on that, but I think, are you, are you using it to the glory of God? Okay, let's move on. So Jeremiah's message is, is hard, and it's essentially God's judgment is 
sure. We can get lost in the complexity of the book and so forth and so on, but we've got Babylon who's going to come in as a superpower. Babylon's going to be the agency that's going to judge Judah, and it's going to be the destruction of the temple and the kingdoms. Let me read a paragraph uh, that I think Boa and Wilkerson capture it very well. An avalanche of judgment is coming, and Jeremiah is called to proclaim that message faithfully for 40 years. In response to his sermons, the tender prophet of God, I love that, experiences intense sorrows at the hands of his countrymen, opposition, beatings, isolation, imprisonment. But though rejected and persecuted, Jeremiah lives to see many of his prophecies come true. The Babylonian army arrives, vengeance falls, and God's holiness and justice are vindicated, though it breaks the prophet's heart. Um, I wonder if... um, present-day believers, when we look at our country, we look at our situation, and you know, we, can, we can get all maudlin and discouraged and angry, and we can get blue versus red, Democrat versus Republican, we, uh, and we can independence, libertarians, socialism, whatever you want to dive into. History is a long tutor. Nothing is new. Nothing is new. Think about what Jeremiah is writing about. Nothing is new. Hundreds of years compared to our 239th year that we are in, 240. Um, Babylon is going to destroy the house of God. What? Yeah. How could God let this happen? Because he's holy, and we can't understand it all. But it's part of his prescription. It's part of his dealing with man. Jeremiah 7, verse 23. But this is what I commanded them, saying, Obey my voice and I will be your God, and you will be my people. And you will walk in all the way which I command you, that it may be well with you. Yet they did not obey or incline their ear. They walked in their own counsels and in their own stubbornness of their evil heart. And this line's killer. They went backward, not forward. You as an American citizen at this particular time in 2020. You have concerns, whether it's parenting or your marriage or your teens or your college-bound kids or your retirement or your health or your relational networks or, 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 or. Somewhere we have to take a breath in our, our, our pre, uh, presuppositions and our focus on our own little sphere of influence and step back and say, am I listening to the Word of God? Am I running to obey? History is, is a great tutor that we have forgotten, and essentially we have erased it. Unless you're a homeschooler or a tutorial, or you've got your child in an extraordinarily good school that talks about history, we don't know anything. Sam and I were talking on the drive up this morning about some news we, snippets we listened to. We go, people have no concept of history. They have no concept of history. So you're living in a vacuum making decisions because this is, it, it really becomes reductionistic. I can never believe in a God who... You don't know your history. Now, I'm not trying to shame you. or Well, maybe I am. Uh, I'm trying to stir you up in your thinking. I'm trying to goad you not to be suffocated by the culture. Don't let the world teach you theology. Don't let a popular opinion teach you theology. Don't let churches teach you theology. That's a terrible thing to say. You got a mind. You got a book. God's word. God's spirit. God's people. 
That's the only way I know to stay secure. Maybe there's better ways. The foundation must begin here. What did he say? He did not stutter. Can we count on his word? Yes. I mean, don't you love this? I commanded you. I will be with you. You walk in the way that it may be well with you. That's the thing we don't believe. We don't like the way it's working out. And as I said in the past year, where did we ever get an idea? Life was supposed to work out a certain way. That's called growing up. You respond to things that don't work out. There's no Ozzy and Harriet. There's no Father Knows Best. There's no happily ever after. There's a lot of toil and trouble and, and challenges and health and relationships and money and life and stuff and blah, blah, blah. Can you and I be faithful in that? Yes. And that's where you can stand and smile at the future. Do we obey his voice? And a question I ask myself frequently, and I hope you would ask yourself from time to time, is do you run to obey as quickly as you run to sin? It's easy to run to sin. But do we run to obey? Finally, I want to end with the new covenant because this to me is the crescendo of the book. In Jeremiah 31, 31, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, so the divided kingdom is going to be reunited, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand. You've got to love the language. To bring them out of the land of Egypt. They forgot their history. My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it. Notice that it's God's word written on their heart, not their experience. Don't make that error. It's God's word written on their heart. That's the truth they have to grasp, and you and I have to grasp. I will be their God, and they will be my people. They will not teach again each man to his neighbor, and each man's brother saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me, from least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. The new covenant transplants and transposes all the failures of Israel and Egypt, the failures of broken humanity, the failures of sin. And the new covenant is in the personal work of Jesus Christ. And it is in the new covenant that Jesus celebrates, the new covenant in the Lord's table. It's the new covenant that carries us through. Somebody had to pay the penalty of sin. And so God became man. The last thought I'd leave you with is when we're indwelt by this Holy Spirit that we're given, we hear God's word, do we listen to it, do we pay attention to it, do we understand what it is, do we run to obey it? He gave us this person called the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is better than a guilty conscience. The Holy Spirit is there to help you and me to be transformed. Not to beat us over the head, not to be the hound of heaven like the, they used to call him, the hound of heaven chasing you. That's a good picture, but it lacks a little bit. He's there to help you to be transformed God's Word, God's Spirit indwelling you in me, and God's people to round off what we can't see. Michael Leasley in Context is fully funded by our listeners. Would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation to support our ministry? You can give at michaelincontext.com. In Context is produced by Hannah Seymour and music composed by Chad Cates.